0: What's up, TRP Podcast listeners? This is Josh. Thank you for spending some time with us today, thinking through yet another message on the letter of James, this small but influential and important New Testament book that is oftentimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Now, we've been looking at this from the vantage point of James taking on the teachings of Jesus and then disseminating those teachings in different ways as a sage would in the ancient world not just replicating the same teaching from their teacher but giving it to the people within their own context for application. We're in chapter 4 of this small book making a pretty pretty good uh, pretty good headway. We're nearing the end of this study and we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures." You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And this is a compelling section in the letter of James. And again, if you just come at it with no prior knowledge, you might be tempted to compartmentalize these pieces as individual uh, wisdom sayings that James is maybe even thoughtlessly piecing together. In fact, you could just kind of chop this passage up into three or four bits of wisdom and from the very get-go it's it's speaking our language he begins by discussing fights and quarrels which for us yes check that is absolutely something we can get on board with not in principle per se not as though we favor fights and quarrels but in practice this is something that we know quite a bit about especially in the midst of a pandemic, as we have been trapped with our families for months and months already and are now staring into the face of yet another potential lockdown. Actually, as I'm recording this sermon, we just got word that Wicomico County has decided to go all virtual for school again for the next handful of weeks. It's 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 this Moment where we are faced with with real difficulties. Now I I know if if you were listening closely, you heard me say that we had been trapped with our families. When really I meant that we have had the divinely appointed opportunities to spend time with with our families. There has been in fact a lot of good over the last eight or so months, where uh, just being able for me to spend time with. Kate and the boys and uh, just have opportunities to be with them when I, I wouldn't uh, in, in any other scenario with, with school and summer and, and even going into back to last spring. We spent a lot of time together. But as you know, it's been hard. It has broken many of us, at least for a time. Perhaps we have had our fair share of fights and quarrels with those that we love. I would argue that the passage, it escalates a bit too quickly for most of us. Uh, James begins by asking the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And we might be tempted there, uh, not understanding that James is going to continue to answer this. We might want to, to jump in and say, well, it's this person over there or this comment on Facebook, or we begin to shift blame. James corrects our thinking and says, actually, don't, these fights and quarrels come from your desires that battle within you. The things that we bring to the table are our flawed humanity, I guess you could say. But then James goes <clears throat> completely nuts, and he writes, "You desire, but do not have, so you kill," which is admittedly intense. I, I get that we've had a, a rough eight months or so of of quarantine or some version of quarantine but that's that's going a bit far james in its context uh, scholars debate whether or not james is discussing a real or hypothetical event in this time remember religious zealots were known to kill for the sake of their faith commitments so some scholars think it might represent a real happening or at least a potential real happening Other scholars wisely point out that it would be strange for James to write that only this one line here on murdering people, that seems worthy of some concentrated pastoral attention, you know, beyond the, hey, I've heard you might be killing people. You know why you do that, right? It's your desires. You need to get those in check. That that seems a bit far-fetched. But still, we get it. We fight, we quarrel. There is immediate relevance for us here, and as modern-day readers, we might focus in on that one piece of wisdom. This happens in our homes with our families. It happens in our church community, uh, like within TRP. It happens among other faith communities as well. And I'm not saying that just other faith communities have their own struggles, uh, internal struggles. I, I'm, I'm thinking more of that virtual wall between faith communities where church attendance in a different place, it seems to prohibit sustained friendships because, well, well I guess there's a few different reasons, but one would be because churches inevitably do things differently. And that has become a problem for some of us. We a bit too easily conclude that our church is where God is most pleased. And that absolutely impacts how we view others who have chosen on their own free will to be a part of a different local congregation that in our mind, at least, doesn't do things quite as good as we do. Whoever that we is, I think there's a lot of territorialism that comes with these church commitments in our context. Now, I will say that it's probably this, this church setting, this internal fighting and quarreling that James is probably after in this passage. Uh, in fact, it says that the quarrels and fights come from your desires that battle within you. And we might miss this in our reading of the Bible, but it's not just you singular. It's not just they come from your desires that battle within you john or tom or jody it it actually is literally it they come from desires that battle among your members it's plural it's not just you or me or john and tom and jody who i don't know where those names came from it's our communities and it's prevalent It it still is and we would do well to reflect on our participation in this process of bringing fights and quarrels into our communities. So when we come to the book of James, we might focus on this, this bit of teaching and uh, miss its plural you, miss its among its members, think about ourselves, and then just move on about our day. Another potential focus in this passage could be the bit on unanswered prayer. And I made a joke on Sunday that totally bombed where I was half tempted to start singing the Garth Brooks song about unanswered prayer. I gotta tell you, it's really hard to do any sort of comedy when you have a mask covering half of your face. Nobody can see my facial expressions. They're looking at me like I'm an idiot. I can't see how they're responding. It's a a weird time. But anyway... James writes, you don't have because you don't ask. Now, if you just read that line, you might be inclined to think that the problem is that people aren't praying and that James is pointing this out. But then in the very next line, he adds, when you ask, you don't receive. So they are praying. Clearly, they're asking for something. It's just that according to James, they're asking for the wrong things. He's saying here, you don't have because you don't ask with the implication being you don't ask for the right things because if you did, you'd get them. Remember in chapter one, James has already taught if any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. It almost seems formulaic. If you need wisdom, ask God and God will give you wisdom. Now that doesn't mean that you can't study for the test, ask God for wisdom and then pass the test. That's not what this is about. It's not saying you don't have to put in any work, but there's there's a, a, uh, an ungrudging gift from God to grant us wisdom to know how to proceed in certain situations. Scott McKnight writes here uh, that prayer is depicted in this passage as capital or currency, and the prayers have spent all of their requests on the wrong things. James notes in this passage that they're not only asking for the wrong things, though, they're also asking for the wrong things in the wrong ways, according to the wrong motives, to the wrong ends. Again, another New Testament scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, says that the gift-giving God is here manipulated as a kind of vending machine precisely for our purposes of self-gratification. Now, again, We could look at these couple of verses here and focus on them because prayer is a hot topic. We could come at this from a philosophical or a theological standpoint or just a practical standpoint. For example, we could just stop here and simply ask, what are we praying for? How are we praying for those things? What are our motivations? What are our desired ends. You could even take two steps back and just say, are we even praying? TRP is a really nerdy community, and sometimes we we kind of go and look at things from 30,000 feet above, and I think for some of us, this is a point of struggle. What, is, what does prayer look like, and what does it do? Who is it meant to inform? Does it change God's mind? Does it change us? How do we how do we reconcile all of these deep questions that we have of this passage? Now, I'm going to leave those there and just kind of let your mind wander a bit. And I would encourage you to to think through this this passage and and do some self uh, assessment on your your prayer life and begin to ask the difficult questions. If you want to unpack that, please feel free to drop me an email or uh, shoot me a text or a Facebook message or whatever. I'd love to unpack what this might look like for you in your lives. There's another um, bit of this larger passage, though, that, that caught my attention. I would actually even say it probably caught my attention more than others, uh, and it's the contrast between friendship with God and friendship with the world. For many of us, this was definitely a theme of our previous church life. And here, I'm really targeting the churched crowd, the former youth group attendees in our congregation, in our midst, the people that can identify with some of these scenarios that I'm about to unpack for you. We might flash back to those youth group bonfires fueled by our worldly CDs, right? And this is this is a, a timestamp. For me, it was CDs. For other people, it might have been tapes or records or uh, different forms. But there's all sorts of stories of youth groups gathering to burn their secular music because that was of the world. And if you listened to... Eric Clapton, then you were destined for hell. Uh, We also have a a similar sort of um, moment where we would fold up pieces of paper uh, that were written by us as 15-year-olds with certain worldly sins scrawled on one side and perhaps throw them into a bonfire or nail them to a cross or, or some form of of penance where we would uh, try to purge ourselves of these worldly things. My friend tells a great story about a youth group message that climaxed with the students writing their sins on a piece of paper and then placing them in a metal bucket that was strategically placed in the middle of the sanctuary. And after the students very earnestly deposited the notes with their secret sins written on them, the youth pastor ceremoniously lit the contents of the trash can on fire. It was meant to symbolize God's removal of the chains of their bondage, as if to say, these will never hold you again. Now, there's a lot of problems with this example, but the one I'll tell you about is very pragmatic. The sanctuary was carpeted. And as you can imagine, this did not end well. Students screaming, the metal buckets smoking, the smell of singed Berber carpet right beyond the top of the three-point line in the sanctuary, which also doubled as a basketball court during the week. Rather than providing a sense of cleansing, the students were actually given a very tangible reminder of their sins every time they entered the sanctuary from that day on. The burned marks on the carpet held all of their secrets. Now, I'll go ahead and break it to you and to your former youth pastors. This passage is not about separating ourselves from the surrounding culture. In fact, whenever the Bible talks about uh, the world in this way, it's not a removal of ourselves from culture. It's not about burning our CDs. Now, you'll have different people have different opinions on this, but there's some great Christian theologians that talk about redeeming the arts, allowing the things that we watch, or the things that we listen to, to, to teach us about who, who God is. This passage is not about only watching stuff on God flicks. Is that what it's called? God flicks or God tube or any, any just overtly Christian media. It's not saying that we can't watch TV. It's not about our wardrobe. It's not about the clothes that we wear. It's not about our bathing suit choices. It's not about purity culture. It's not about enjoying secular things. Whatever that whatever that means, this whole idea of the divide between the sacred and the secular, it seems like it's a very American uh Invention, uh, within the pages of Scripture, there is no separation of these things. As one notable pastor says, everything is spiritual. This passage is not a, really even about our sins, at least not in this high school sort of way where we write down the stuff that holds us. In this passage, James pits friendship with God over against friendship with the world. And this is where start of our some of the start of our... Uh, understanding begins to break down because friendship means one thing in our culture right now and friendship in the ancient world means something very different in the ancient world friendship was was much more meaningful now i don't mean that as a as a broad uh, brush statement against your friends because some of your friends do live out what i'm about to explain but in the ancient world the way that they talked about friendship it was a committed relationship it was akin to a covenant James is not simply saying don't sin as if every time you listen to Eminem, you are befriending the world and you need to to repent and become friends with God again. He's saying don't reject God. Don't walk away from God. Don't break your covenant to God. Don't pursue your own personal gain. Don't befriend the world by enacting a committed relationship by enacting a covenant that turns your back on your former commitments to God. Again, we could look at any of these passages that I've just outlined, Uh, the, the fighting and the quarreling, the bit about prayer, the bit about friendship with God or friendship with the world. We could choose so many of these lines that are immediately relevant, which again is why so many people find the book of James helpful. Now, here's where I'm going to turn the corner. Remember, for James, this is not just a collection of generalized wisdom. It's not Proverbs. It's not uh, you go from a line on wealth to a line on friends to a line on speech. It, it's, it's more connected than that. It's not a bunch of random notes to lead us as the readers to, to live a more godly life. James is writing a letter that has an audience and in the last chapter and a half he's been developing an idea the idea is basically the leaders of the jewish christian community are stirring stuff up. They've been speaking inappropriately in chapter three. They've been starting controversies and creating dissension. Again, chapter three, they've been guided by their own bitter envy and selfish ambition. They have not chosen godly wisdom. They've chosen something entirely different. And now in chapter four, they're starting fights. They might even be killing people. There's at least this undercurrent of of potential violence that's there against the people who disagree with them, or the people, maybe better, who stand in their way of advancement. These leaders are placing their own desires ahead of the community. They're not seeking the best interest of all. They are not humble. They are proud so then James concludes in light of all of this, probably to this group of leaders in the community, he says this, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, you you leaders who are stirring up uh, dissension among the people. Wash your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded, looking back to chapter one that talks about... Uh, people should not think that they w- would receive anything because they are double-minded in their ways. Grieve, mourn, and wail, he says. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James's concern here is focused on this group of people, and it is very much a pastoral concern. It's not evangelical in the sense of he's... Uh, doing an altar call here, submit yourselves then to God, people who have never heard the gospel message. He's not dimming the lights and asking people to repeat the sinner's prayer for the first time. He's talking to the leaders of the community. So his concern is restorative. It's for those already within the community, those leading the community, in fact, to turn from their selfish ways, motivated by status and image and pride of place in the community to stop stirring up dissension and disorder and reestablish their friendship, their covenant with God. James's concern, in other words, is for their submission, their humility, their repentance. And here, James the pastor is inviting this to happen. Now, I... I, I want to go on record here and say that even if we identify the leaders and the teachers in the early Christian community as the audience that James is talking to, there is some application for us today. Because as we pointed out, we can identify with a lot of these different categories, fighting, quarreling, uh, our prayer life, and how we have sometimes bad motivations that are leading us to uh, to those to seeking our own ends, our own pleasure. And I don't mean that in a, in a weird way, just our own, uh, we have our own agenda that we're trying to fulfill even in our prayer life. There's times when we don't just sin, but we turn from our friendship with God, from our covenant with God, and we go in a completely different direction to suit our own needs and to suit our own agendas. Again, this passage here at the end, it's about... It's about repentance. It's about self-assessment and identifying the fact that God is still with you. Come near to God, he says, and God will come near to you. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. It was, it was a great conversation. It was one of those uh, conversations that was life-giving to me. As a pastor, she was asking great questions. We were diving into the Bible. We were exploring ideas together. At one point, she made an offhanded comment about how TRP doesn't really talk a lot about sin. And now, I should mention, she's, she's not a regular attender, and she actually meant that as a compliment. But still, I was surprised by this because in my mind, we talk a lot about sin. But what she said, it, it got me thinking, it stuck with me. Maybe, for her, it looks different than what most of us got when we were growing up. Maybe this is what she meant as a compliment. Because what I got as a kid growing up was something very similar to a bucket of sins on fire in the sanctuary. All of my lust, all of my pride, all of my shame, all of my guilt. These things that had to be continually surrendered to God and set on fire. I think as I have um, matured, that might be the wrong word, as I have uh, developed over time, as I have grown, there's another way to think about sin as well. And it's not to the exclusion of what I've just said. That's important. But we can also think about sin in terms of the things that we don't do. It's not just the things that we do, but the things that we don't do. Some people call these the sins of omission as opposed to the sins of commission. But the sin of not living in a way that embodies the life Jesus lived or not loving God with everything we have and not loving our neighbors, not standing up against injustice, not including others, not being continually transformed, continually growing, continually moving in our relationship with Jesus. I hope each week to invite you back into this way of following Jesus, that is to reorient our lives around our Savior, because following him is not just about not doing things. It's so much more. Again, it's not to the exclusion of that. There are absolutely things that we need to purge from our lives, fighting, quarreling, praying with wrong motivations, praying with selfish uh, agendas in mind, Be befriending the world not in terms of like the secular things that we um that we enjoy movies and TV and and music I mean we we go towards the agenda of our self and our selfish motivation and our bitter envy we give in to that now this passage in in James I think it does bring us back to the concept of of repentance in a much more straightforward way It brings us back to self-reflection and self-assessment of depending on the Spirit to lead us, and it does that in, in really familiar ways. So whether you're a leader in a faith community or not, I don't think this passage is just about me or just about Susie or just about elders or other pastors. I think that it can be applied for all of us as we face this question, are we repentant? Are we able to identify either the things that James lists here or other things that have caused us to move away or have stunted our growth and our development? I will say it's sometimes difficult to accept something so simple as James' is teaching here, where he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. We place so much on ourselves to be worthy and to be meritorious of God's love and God's acceptance. And I think a lot of that goes back to the to the buckets on fire in our youth group days. There's things that we need to purge ourselves of and it's not until we do that that God will love us or God will accept us. This passage though it's focused on the people that are in the community to get them to right the ship, so to speak to remember their commitments and to live in light of them. There's a New Testament scholar named Doug Moo who writes, like the father of the prodigal son, God stands always ready to welcome back his children who turn from their sinful ways. This passage in its its original context was written probably to leaders in the faith community, but it has application for us today. So as you take some time to consider your own lives, your own motivations, your own desires, your own um, participation in some of these things that might be taking you in the wrong direction, I would encourage you as well to remember the grace of God to cover all of our sins, to, to grant us forgiveness when we repent. If we would just humble ourselves, then God would lift us. May that bless you today.